A simple Google search will give you lots of suggestions. Learn something new. Spend time with your pet. Travel. Dress up in a costume for no reason. Laugh and smile no matter how you're feeling. Get messy. Play barefoot in the mud. Memorize a poem. Take a nap. Exercise. Discover a new smell. Get rid of stuff. Eat a cupcake. Prepare and eat a healthy meal. So I guess there's not so much joy in preparing a cupcake, but eat a cupcake, prepare and eat a healthy meal. Remember and act like the kid you were. Pursue your goals. Get into the flow. I fully suspect that you enjoy something in that list. I I hope that you do. But if there's one dominant theme in where our world says we should look for happiness or joy, it would be in us. It's kind of the, the main theme that our world tells us. The author of a book called Authentic Happiness, using the new positive psychology to realize your potential for lasting fulfillment, tells us that gratifications are the activities we like doing that absorb and engage us fully. I invite you this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's been about two and a half years since I started preaching through this letter and And I very much enjoyed studying it and and getting into it on the weeks that I've had the opportunity to preach. Now, now we've not been here since New Year's Day. So I don't expect you to remember much of anything about the previous section. But perhaps you'll recall somewhat from past sermons how Paul's focus has been on defending his ministry. In the previous five chapters, Paul was the apologist defending the faith. But here in chapter 7, there's a bit of a shift. Paul shifts from the defender of his ministry. He shifts to the pastor admonishing his flock. His previous arguments were largely based on his legitimacy as an apostle. But his arguments beginning here in chapter 7 and going through verse 9 are derived largely from the legitimacy of the Corinthians' life as believers. We see here the legitimate minister speaking freely to those he knows to be legitimate believers. And in this chapter, we catch a glimpse of Paul's pastoral heart. Starting there in verse 2, he writes, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you were in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. The Corinthians had major issues with Paul. They had come to think he was a phony and couldn't be trusted. It appears that there was someone in the church who opposed Paul. Well, instead of standing up and defending Paul, the Corinthian church was persuaded 
to shift their loyalty from Paul and his message to the false teachers who were so compelling and so attractive. As you can imagine, this, this affected Paul. I mean, this hurt him. Primarily because he knew that to reject him was to reject his message. That was what concerned Paul. It really wasn't about him at the end of the day. It was about the message that he was proclaiming. But he makes it clear here, as well as right there in the end of chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, he, he makes it clear that in spite of the pain they had caused him, the Corinthians were near and dear to his heart. His heart was wide open towards them and it was full of love for them. Picking back up in verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul had helped to start the Corinthian church. He left. He heard of some major issues going on and so he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. Shortly there later, he visited to follow up. That visit did not go so well. and Paul left really discouraged. And so he wrote what is called by some the severe letter, painful letter, tearful letter. And Titus had the privilege of delivering the letter to the Corinthian church. We don't have that letter. It apparently was not inspired. But I think that we can assume in that letter, Paul confronted both the person within the church who was responsible for leading the flock away, as well as the rest of the church for following that guy. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said that this painful letter was written out of much affliction and anguish of heart. It was written with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Paul really wanted to hear back from Titus who delivered the letter. So in chapter 2 and verse 12, he tells them that, that his spirit was not at rest at Troas. And the reason his spirit was not at rest at Troas was Titus didn't show up. So Paul leaves for Macedonia hoping to find Titus. And here in verse 5 is where Paul picks up that story. We see that upon arriving in Macedonia, he's in pretty bad shape. He's tired. He's afflicted at every turn by fighting without and by fears within. Part of this fear within was most likely wondering if he'd been too severe in the letter. Would his word offend the Corinthians and ruin forever his ministry with them? We see here that Paul is struggling. He, he's not sleeping well. He's discouraged. He's really anxious about the Corinthians. He's wondering, when on earth is Titus going to come so I can hear how they're doing? Verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Titus shows up and he gives a good report. Paul is so relieved that his fears were unfounded. The Corinthians had responded well. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul knew that his letter would grieve them. 
and he admits here that he actually had some second thoughts about sending it. Uh, can you relate to that? Right? You, you type up a, an email to someone that you love and you say some hard things and with some shaking of the hand, you click send and you don't hear anything back and you think, oh man, why did I send that? I shouldn't have sent that. Paul felt some of that. But any regret that Paul had quickly disappeared. Verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So the sorrow the Corinthians felt from Paul's words led them to repent. And Paul tells us here that the reason he wrote the letter was so that they might correct their cowardly compromise, come to Paul's defense, in the process prove and demonstrate that yes, their faith was genuine. They were indeed true followers of Christ. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul says, I bragged you guys up to Titus. He wasn't particularly excited about having to take this letter to you, but I told him you guys would respond well. You didn't disappoint. I am full of joy because of you. This chapter just oozes with excitement from Paul. I've imagined this week, I tried to just put myself in, in his office or wherever it was he wrote this letter. I just cannot imagine that he didn't have a big smile on his face. I thought at times perhaps he maybe gave some fist bumps between sentences and paragraphs. And I just imagine it would have been hard to even sit down the entire time without just getting up, physically expressing his excitement. Repeatedly through this chapter, we see Paul references comfort and his joy. Did you catch that? I, I think that's the string that holds this chapter together. And did you notice where his joy was found? Where his joy came from? It did not come from himself. In fact, both the source of Paul's joy and the means of his joy were outside of himself. Let's consider first the source of Paul's comfort and joy. The source of Paul's comfort and joy, we see that in verse 6. The source of his comfort and joy was God, but God who comforts the downcast. What a beautiful description of God. It reminds 
us of what Paul wrote in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I think there's an allusion here to Isaiah 49.13, which speaks of God having comforted the downcast of his people. Paul had shared in the experience of the psalmist who told God in 94.19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolation, your comforts cheer my soul. I wonder, do you feel downcast this morning? Perhaps due to financial struggles or physical struggles? Challenges with your job or conflicts in a relationship with your family or friends? Whatever it may be, your circumstances don't limit God's ability to comfort. How do we know that? Because of the cross. As we considered last week in Romans chapter 8, and by the way, if you missed last Sunday's sermon, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Deeply encouraging. But as we considered in Romans 8.32, since God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Christ graciously give us all things? And we considered last week in this verse how our biggest problem Our biggest problem is separation from God because of our sin. And that problem, the biggest one, has been solved in the death and resurrection of Christ. The greatest comfort we could ever receive is provided there. And so in all of our lesser problems, as big as they may seem to us, God is able to provide comfort to our discouraged hearts. In Christ, He has become our high priest who sympathizes with our trials and our difficulties. So when you're downcast, don't run from God to things that only distract or numb your pain and don't even provide lasting comfort. Run to God. Run to the one and only God who comforts the downcast. The source of Paul's comfort did not come from himself. It came from God. And we also see here that the means through which Paul, which God gave Paul comfort, wasn't himself either. God comforted and gave Paul joy through other people. You see that? You see the means here of the joy? Verse 6, God comforted me by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but by the comfort He got from you guys. So there's a, Titus comes and Paul's comforted and there's joy there. Look at verse 13. Paul received joy from the fact that Titus was encouraged by the Corinthians. So, so there's, there's joy through Titus, through his coming, through the way the Corinthians had received him. And there's joy and comfort Paul receives through the Corinthians, through the way that they responded to him there in verse 7. Verse 13, the way they responded to Titus. God wanted Paul comforted. 
So did he just zap Paul? He could do that. No. God used normal means. He worked through Titus and the Corinthians to comfort and encourage Paul. Now there are, we we know this, that there are lots of different means that God uses to comfort us and to give us joy when we're discouraged. Reading or listening to a particular portion of Scripture or a sermon. Serving others in need. Good music is a means God uses. Christian books or biographies. Speaking to yourself rather than just letting your fears dominate you is a means God uses. And I think it would be good for us to think about the many ways in which God provides our souls with comfort and joy. And we should ask ourselves, am I tagging into those things? Am I taking advantage of those means that God's given? But let's think just a bit more about this means, the means we see here, of the Corinthian church that God used to provide Paul with comfort and joy. Now, this isn't the only place in the New Testament we see a picture of this joy that's provided through others. Paul tells the Philippians, you guys are my joy and my crown. He asks the Thessalonians, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. And the Apostle John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You should know that as elders and pastors, we feel this same joy for every member of Eden Baptist Church as he or she walks in a manner worthy of the gospel. And on the flip side, we know well the fears within when you live in a way that contradicts the gospel. See, this is part of the burden and blessing that comes from having to give an account to God for the responsibility He's given us to keep watch over your souls. And so as Hebrews thirteen seventeen commands us, we should all consider how we can live and relate to our leadership in a way that brings them joy, not grief, because that is no advantage to us. So, member of Eden Baptist Church, how can we contribute to the joy of our elders? I think a good question to think about here. Two suggestions. First, we should share our lives with them. So talk about what you're learning from the teaching and preaching. Share how you are growing and ways in which God is at work in your life. And do know that we as elders desire to hear from you. Whether a casual conversation in the lobby or at a picnic, an email or conversation in a formal shepherding visit, your sharing with us is one of the means God uses to provide us with joy. But this comfort and joy that is tied to others is not something that's just for pastors. It's something we should all experience. Every member of this church should have a deep and genuine interest in the spiritual well-being of every other member. It's really part of our call to love one another. One author has said that love does not seek its own private, limited joy, but instead seeks its own joy in the good, the salvation and edification of others. See, and it's at this point that we've got to go against what our world is telling us. Because in order to receive this joy from God, 
we cannot look at ourselves. We actually have to look away from ourselves with insightful and convicting words. Hughes says that self-focused, interdirected, selfish, I am the center of the world hearts can never benefit from the comfort that Paul experienced because they are incapable of finding joy in another's spiritual prosperity. Shriveled, imploded hearts can only conceive of comfort and joy in terms of the enhancement of their own situation. Of course, you will know some members on a more intimate and personal level than others. But you should feel sorrow when any member is not walking in line with the truth. And you should experience joy when you hear and see of God's grace at work in the life of anyone else. This requires us to know each other, doesn't it? This requires us to be involved in one another's lives. And it requires a willingness on our part to be open and transparent as others seek to be involved in our lives. So to the best of your ability, attend the picnics. Attend the other church activities. Come on Sunday evenings. Not only to be involved in the vital life of the church that's happening, but just to talk to people. Come on Wednesday evenings to discuss how God's Word relates to your life and come to pray with others. So as you grow more and more into the life of our church, you'll relate to others in more and more meaningful ways that go below the surface. And then, and there, you will find God's provision of comfort and joy. And at the same time, God will use you as a means of comfort and joy in the lives of others. So may we be a church that is more and more finding our joy through what God is doing in the lives of others. The joy Paul received through the Corinthians in this text was most directly tied to their repentance. And so I think it's valuable and worth looking a little bit more closely at verses 9 through 11. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor, author, and seminary professor whose work on these three verses I found to be extremely helpful. And so there's points here at which I will be drawing from him. But let's just look again at verses 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. People today, I think, tend to think that feeling sorry for something is pretty much neutral. There's not really a right or wrong way to feel bad. You just feel it. In fact, if anything, we consider grief over some action to just automatically be a really good thing. But do you note in these verses that not all grief is the same? It is possible to feel sorry in a worldly way that is not honoring to God and and not helpful to us. So let's consider worldly grief. Worldly grief. What is it? A helpful definition that I I found here is 
Worldly grief is the expression of regret over opportunities lost, painful present circumstances, or personal embarrassment. So, to illustrate, a college freshman regrets choosing to play video games all weekend. Rather than study for the final exam on Monday, that causes him to fail the exam, which causes him to fail the class, and he has to take it over again. So there's an opportunity there that was lost. A man is sorry for having gambled away $10,000 at the casino and has put his family in even more debt and they can't pay their bills. So he experiences grief over painful circumstances. You feel terrible that the woman you were chatting about in a negative way with other ladies in the lobby was looking for her coat right behind you and heard everything and she bolts out the door in tears. And you're so embarrassed because you looked really bad. See, worldly grief is centered on self. It grieves over consequences. It aches with embarrassment. It is self-pitying as it focuses on its own hurt. Worldly grief has to do with pride, ego, humiliations. It's not really concerned about what God thinks. We feel sorry because we love the praise of men, not because we have the fear of God. One commentator summarizes worldly grief as, the grief that comes about because one actions result in missing out on something the world has to offer. It feels bad because it wants more of the world. You see here where worldly grief leads. It produces death. It produces death because it doesn't allow us to see our offensiveness to God so we don't deal with our sin against God that leads to death. See, worldly grief does not address our relationship with God. It deals with the symptoms, but not the disease. It tries to patch up the situation and make us feel better. But it never deals with the heart. And this leads to despair, to bitterness, to depression, because it focuses on regret over the past, which cannot be changed, instead of personal sin, which can always be forgiven. So worldly grief is utterly hopeless, because it doesn't solve our deepest need. Our sin, DeYoung notes, is always a bigger problem than the mess it has gotten us into. Our sin is is always a bigger problem than the mess it has gotten us into. Worldly grief is no solution, and it ultimately leads us to death. Thankfully, there's another type of grief. Paul felt great joy because the Corinthians' grief was not a worldly grief, but it was a godly grief, literally a grief according to God. The focus of godly grief is on God. I think John Piper's contrast here is really helpful. He says, Worldly grief is the reflex of self-focused, proud ego wrapped up in things of this world. Godly grief is the reflex of a conscience that has wounded God's ego, not its own. 
Godly grief is the grief of a God-saturated heart, not a world-saturated heart. We read here in the text that godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. It's worth noting in this that grief or sorrow is not the same thing as repentance. You see that? So to feel sorry, to feel grief over regret or past sin is absolutely a necessary part of repentance. You don't have repentance without sorrow. But that sorrow is not the same thing as repentance. So just because we issue an apology doesn't necessarily mean we've repented. We've all, we hear them all the time, right? In the news, newspaper. The scripted apologies usually that come from athletes or politicians. And, And I think, to be honest, we've all given similar types of pseudo-apologies ourselves. I'm sorry for the offense some people took to what I said. I'm sorry if you took things the wrong way. I regret my choice of words and the way that they were misinterpreted. I'm sorry if my actions were hurtful. And even when the apology is sincere, and and no doubt these types of apologies are, are often really sincere, But even when it's sincere, it may not be a sincere statement of repentance. It may just be a sincere statement of feeling remorse or shame that one got caught and made a mess of things or is no longer viewed as highly in the eyes of others. So what's the test? How do we know if sorrow is worldly or godly? The answer is whether or not it leads to repentance. See, where there is godly sorrow, there will be repentance. Repentance. What does that mean? You have some idea in your head, I think, probably of repentance. I think it's helpful to think a little bit about what repentance is. Even though all through the Bible God commands people to repent, it isn't all that uncommon today for churches to leave out the repentance aspect of faith. But but to leave out repentance is to be unfaithful to the gospel. In fact, if you leave out repentance, you actually lose Christianity. Jesus said in Luke 13:5, "You must repent or you will perish." So, repentance is a pretty big deal. We can't just kind of shove it to the side. Fundamentally, even just in the basic meaning of the word, repentance involves a change of mind. And there's three aspects of the ways in which the mind changes that I think is helpful for us to think about. First, it's a change of mind about yourself. I am not fundamentally a good person deep down. I am not the center of the universe or the king of my life. It's a change of mind about sin. I'm responsible for my actions. It's not anybody else's fault. My past hurts. Don't excuse my present failings. I do not think or feel as I should. My offenses against God and others aren't trivial. Involves a change of mind about God. He is trustworthy. His word is sure. He's able to forgive and save. I believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. 
who wants the best for me. So repentance fundamentally involves a change of mind, but the change of mind inevitably leads to a change of behavior. So reading the prodigal son earlier, did you catch how the prodigal son had a change of mind about himself, his sin, and God, and what did it do? It led him to leave his sin and to come home. So the Corinthians didn't just feel bad, they turned. They weren't just stirred up by Paul's letter, they changed. And Paul describes the change in their lives six different ways in verse 11. He says, see what earnestness in regards to his ministry. What eagerness to clear yourselves. Before the Corinthians had been apathetic about their complicity complicity against Paul, but now they wanted to prove their loyalty to Paul. See what indignation or what hatred you have for your sin. What fear of God's judgment as they had sinned against the holy God. What zeal. Zeal for Paul and his ministry and a zeal for their relationship to be restored. See what punishment demonstrated in their willingness to see Paul's offender properly dealt with. So having demonstrated genuine repentance, they proved themselves innocent in the matter. They had been forgiven by God. The visible expression of God's stamp of approval was their genuine repentance. So we see that there's an eternal difference between regret or sorrow and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sins. Repentance turns from past sins. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Where does godly sorrow lead? It leads to salvation. There is no question that the, the work of repentance can be really hard and painful. But it's really worth it. It's really worth it because it leads to salvation. It leads to salvation because truly turning from sin is at the same time turning to Christ. And in Christ, there is full forgiveness for all sin. This salvation is without regret. In de Young's words, the only regret that matters are the ones that offend God and those can all be taken care of in Christ. There are no regrets in the life to come because Christ paid it all. So then really quick to summarize, worldly grief and godly grief have a different cause. Worldly grief is caused by loss or denial of something we want for ourselves. It's self-centered. Godly grief is caused by an awareness of who God is and our sin against him. It is God-centered. Worldly grief and godly grief have different results. Worldly grief is selfish and therefore gives rise to despair. It immobilizes makes you stagnant, it leads to spiritual death. Godly grief is fruitful and effective. It spurs you into action, to repentance, and it leads to eternal life. So it's worth asking this morning, is is our sorrow, is the sorrow that you feel for sin in your life a worldly grief? Or is it a godly grief? There's a lot of need here for really careful examination of our hearts. I've been really convicted this week, thinking and meditating on this, 
of evidences in my life of worldly sorrow as I see my sin. It's certainly possible that you're here this morning and have never experienced this repentance that comes from godly sorrow. You perhaps walked in the door with a deep sense of regret or guilt over things that you've done. You need to know that the things you have done are sins against God. All of us are guilty of sinning against God. And because God is a perfectly just judge, He cannot overlook what you've done. The penalty for our sin is eternal death. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He never sinned. Jesus never experienced guilt or regret for sin. And so as He died on the cross, He did not die to pay the penalty of his sin. He died to pay the penalty of our sins. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for our life, taking the punishment of death that we deserved. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, confirming that he was satisfied with the payment Christ made for us. So so when we look there, when we turn away from our sin and look to Christ, we see that there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And God's grace is greater than our sin. So I urge you this morning, let go of the sin that is leading you to death and turn to Christ. In Christ, you'll find forgiveness. You'll find salvation. And you'll find no regrets. And for those of us here who have repented of our sins and are trusting in Christ, we must remember that this call to repent, just like the call to believe, it's, this is not a one and done thing. Paul is writing to believers, those who at some point in the past turned from their sin and turned to Christ. He called for believers to repent because repentance is something that must continue to mark our lives as long as we live. Packer's words are so helpful on this point. He says repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. See, we're ongoing sinners. So we need the ongoing presence of godly sorrow and we need the ongoing practice of repentance. As we conclude this morning, there are two questions that John Piper asked over 30 years ago at the end of his sermon on this text. And they're questions that I think are really good and useful for us to consider. So we kind of take the plane up and look over what was happening in this chapter with, with the letter that was written and with the response of the Corinthians. These are questions that I think will be useful for us in our lives as, as believers. The first question is, are you willing to cause godly grief? 
Are you willing to cause godly grief? Helping people recognize their sin is never easy. I mean, think of it. In a lot of ways, do you think Paul's life would have been easier if he hadn't sent that letter? I mean, he wouldn't have maybe lost as much sleep. He wouldn't have had the angst and discomfort of wondering how are these guys going to respond. Hey, he probably could have come and re- come up with a lot of reasons to not even bother sending it. Yeah, they're probably not even Christians anyway, so what's the point? You know, why, why on earth would they listen to me when I'm the one they have the problem with? There is no question that we can confront when we should not, but perhaps more often we don't say anything when we should because it's safer. It's just a lot easier. It's true that we risk rejection and criticism when we care about someone enough to point out their sin. And maybe it's not even something that's clearly sin, but something we see that just gives us a reason for concern. So, so we've got to pray for wisdom. We've got to pray for humility and grace. But in order to be faithful pastors, faithful husbands, faithful wives, faithful church members, faithful parents, faithful friends, we must be willing, when necessary, to speak the hard word that will cause grief. Second question, are you willing to accept godly grief? So so put yourself for a moment in the place of the Corinthians. You get a painful letter from someone who knows you and loves you. It's a rebuke. It's a call to repentance. It's, it's an expression of their love. Would you respond like the Corinthians? Or would you bristle in self-defense and, and start to point to other people's flaws? One preacher has observed that we so naturally rationalize our actions. I mean, we all do this. We want someone else to be the bad guy. We want to talk about how much everyone else sins how bad things are, how everyone else is out to get us, how confusing things are. And the one who causes the grief is really just a big jerk. It is certainly true that the person causing the grief may very well be wrong, both in what they say or even how they say it. But brothers and sisters, how we respond is so important. And how we respond says a lot about our hearts. In a blog post called Repentance Versus Defensiveness, Gavin Orland makes the following convicting, yet really valuable insights. He says, It seems to me that we tend to respond to accurate criticism in one of two ways, repentance or defensiveness. These two reactions are as different as heaven and hell. A defensive heart says, but look at what I did, right, which is diversion. A repentant heart says, here specifically is what I did wrong, honesty. A defensive heart says, but look at what was done to me, distraction. A repentant heart says, here is how I contributed to the conflict, ownership. 
A defensive heart says, it really wasn't that bad, downplaying. A repentant heart says, yeah, it was a really big deal. Admission. And then he goes on in this short article to point out to us the great freedom, the great freedom and hope that we have in the gospel. And and I hope these words that we end with will encourage your heart and comfort your heart as you think about responding to confrontation. He says the gospel alone can free us for honesty, ownership, and admission. Because the gospel alone destroys the sting and judgment associated with criticism. The gospel takes away the fear that drives defensiveness and frees us to openly admit our shortcomings. The gospel says your deepest fears were already born by your Savior. The gospel says your sins were exposed and dealt with at the cross. The battle's already over. This is what the gospel does for us. In the court of heaven, which matters infinitely more than any human court, we've already been tried. And through Christ, we've already been acquitted. Our world tells us that the key to experiencing joy lies within ourselves. But as we have seen this morning, there is a deep joy that God intends for us to know that comes outside of ourselves. God is the source of true comfort and joy. And He graciously provides it to us through the means of what He's doing in the lives of others. So Father, we offer now our praise to You as the God who comforts the downcast. And we thank You for using Your sanctifying work in the hearts of other people to bring us joy. Help us, Father, through the work of Your Spirit to see where there is worldly grief in our hearts. And as You do, by Your grace, move our focus away from ourselves to You. We thank You, Father, for the gift of repentance This is your divine supernatural work. God, we cannot make repentance happen in our hearts, in the hearts of anyone else. It's your work, and we thank you for the gift that it is. Please help us to see our sin. Help us, Father, to grow to hate it more and more. And then help us to do whatever is necessary to let it go. We ask, Father, that you would grant us the wisdom to know if and when we should confront sin we see in someone else. And, Father, please give us grace and humility in how we do it. And when your word works through others to help us see our sin, please, Lord, help us to receive their words with humility as a good and gracious gift from you. We ask, Father, that you would do this work in us for your glory, and for our eternal good. Asking all these things through Christ. Amen.